From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Today, I want to introduce you to Liz Georgie. She went to journalism school to become a TV reporter, but when she started working in newsrooms, she realized they were, well, a little bit behind the times. Her newsroom training, combined with her understanding of social media and an entrepreneurial instinct, led her to create Mightyor, one of the world's first internet video production companies. Mightyor's innovative combination of production and online promotion techniques have helped clients achieve more than 500 million organic views and received international media attention. Liz is an Emmy Award winner whose work has appeared on PBS, the Discovery Channel, Big Ten Network, and at festivals and museums across the globe. She's also a board member for Women Who Startup Foundation and the Women in Business National Council's Next Generation Board. That's a mouthful. And oh yeah, she's launching another new business this year. Let's meet Liz. First of all, did I pronounce your name, your yeah, last name, it, right? Yeah. Georgie, Liz Georgie, right? Yeah. Okay, fantastic. So Italian, okay. Good job. <laughs> wow. Um, Liz, you have trekked through a snowstorm to be here with us today. That's devotion. That's I, hustle. It's hustle. I really believe in it. <laughs> I actually think the journey of working hard gives you the passion and the love to actually come to like going through that yes. snowstorm this morning hyped me up we to wanted be here. to be here yeah, yes I was and hyped to be here because of it yes and you even wore your cute shoes i did i wore my cute shoes the guy at starbucks was shocked for a I, podcast for yeah a podcast, i yeah. wish everyone could see it but they can because just to set the scene for everyone here in our little studio at saint thomas you have brought an entire video team do you go anywhere without video cameras i do but i rarely get the opportunity to be on a podcast with another badass woman so <laughs> i i Thank decided you. this was a moment to, to, record to record for posterity. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, I'm honored. Well, well, let's let's kind of go back and start at the beginning, if we can. Um, beginning meaning you're you're in college, majoring in journalism. Did you always think you wanted to be a journalist? What did you like about journalism? So I love two things about journalism. One was I fell in love with Barbara Walters as a kid. I thought that she had such poise. But most importantly, watching Barbara conduct an interview was magical to me. Mm -hmm. Watching her unfold a person's personality, to find the truth mm -hmm. through questions, to be engaged in a dialogue in a way that created this atmosphere of wonder and vulnerability. And make know, them cry. And make always them cry. Always make them cry. Always make them cry. I mean, I just... I. It seemed so powerful to me. It mm -hmm. felt like a superpower. The idea that somebody could conduct an interview and be a superwoman by doing doing that. And so I, I kind of went to journalism school with this idea in my mind of I am going to be Barbara Walters. Like that is who Of course I you are. Be. Yes. Um, and I also think I love journalism school. You know, I landed at the University of Minnesota and I... I loved the community of people who are attracted to journalism. Mm -hmm. There's something about even now, like when I go to a meeting and somebody says, oh, I'm a former journalist, like you just immediately have this connection with them. Mm -hmm. It's it's that questioning spirit. It's that willingness to be challenged. It's this whole community of people who don't just 
buy things at face value, who yeah. like dig a little deeper. Mm-hmm. I love that personality trait. And so I think I also just love the community. I fell in love with that community and I wanted so badly to be a part of it. So you get out of school and start working at a TV station? No, I start working all over the place in weird internships. I got a newsroom job at a now defunct newspaper in San Antonio. I bounced around to Atlanta interning at CNN. I like I was just such a useless intern for like two years. I literally interned for two years because I graduated in 2007. So remember that this is a great economy. Yeah. Yeah, It's like pre-economic collapse. Mm -hmm. You're just, you could not find a real job, but I knew that I wanted to try to stay stay in the world of production if I could. Mm -hmm. And so um, I got really lucky in that I came back to Minnesota and I was able to find some more permalancing kind of positions. Uh Uh-huh. that made it made it possible for me to stay engaged in production. Okay. And you know, I'm still really grateful to like working on shows for Big 10 Network, working on Twin Cities public television shows, like having opportunities to sort of get myself at least somewhat gainfully employed. Mm-hmm. Um, and But at any point, did your feelings start to change? Did you get down on the media or on, you know, broadcast news? Did you start thinking, I got to figure something else out? I did. I started what I got down about, interestingly enough, was just as much as I love the spirit of journalism, there was a sort of a reticence for of, innova- of innovation, like just a fear of innovation, yep. a fear of changing the modality in which stories were presented. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult now to sort of imagine a time where newsrooms didn't talk about a website, didn't talk about social media. But, you know, you have to remember at that time I graduated and the only social media platform that was really out there was was Facebook and no newsroom was using Facebook to promote their news. So mm-hmm. there was this fear of it. And I had the opposite reaction. I saw this as an opportunity. I'm saying hey, you know, we're putting all this content out into the world. We could share it with more people in more places. Uh, and that's when I ended up finding a freelance job at Apartment Therapy in New York. And this is a was a digital first brand in 2010 mm-hmm. uh, who had no print, had no traditional broadcast, and they were innovating in the space of home design online. And I immediately just... My soul was on fire for the idea of can we just put more content on the internet? Can we find a way to take what we're doing in, you know, a traditional creative environment? Because, you know, I don't care what anybody says. Being a journalist is a creative exercise. You have sure. to like take a lot of disparate information and create something coherent. Right. In a very short amount of time. Mm-hmm. You're storytelling. You're a storytelling in an extremely short amount of time. And the fact that they were doing that over and over again. I mean, I was writing two stories a day. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a lot of content. And you were writing stories that were then going on online. their website. Yeah. And I was okay. taking the pictures like I was doing it all. The whole right? thing. So like there was this element of it for me that was just and you can still go online and Google my name and read all my stories. <laughs> I'm going like, to. <laughs> you know, <laughs> greatest cable clutter hacks of 2011. Like, you know, <laughs> just like the weirdest. But I think it was such a great exercise for have an idea test it out, put it online, and don't be afraid that it's not going to be the best hit of the week. It's mm-hmm. not every not everything's going to be above the fold, right? Like some things are going to fill a certain audience's need or demand. And that was really kind of one of the big sparks for me, I think, of 
okay, I could do this. I could find a way to make a living creating content. But how? Like, okay. how does it come together? Right. So where? So you have this. You have this realization. You have kind of your perma interning still. So like, then how does that become mightier? So then I start working with the University of Minnesota again, mm-hmm. and I'm building a YouTube channel for them. Okay. And so I am building YouTube channels. I'm helping them like create content that they can put on the YouTube channel. I'm organizing it. Did you have to convince them that they needed a YouTube channel? There was this weird situation where there was all this video content and nobody knew what to do with it. And it was sort of this accident of happenstance. I was like, hey, we should put it on YouTube. And no one said no. (laughs) (laughs) So that's actually one of the best like things I tell people when when I they say like well how do you get the bravery to take risks or how do you get the bravery to try something I say the worst thing you're going to hear is no and most people don't want to say no Mm -hmm. and if you don't hear no then just just plow ahead yeah Yeah. try anyway and so I got really fortunate that they sort of trusted me to do that and then I started meeting some of the people at YouTube because at that time they hadn't been acquired by Google yet it was still a pretty scrappy business and they were kind of amazed (laughs) to be honest that like Anybody could produce as much content as we were producing for a higher education institution. Mm -hmm. It was in that job that I then got recruited by Henley Rapp and Company to work at their agency, now Rapp Strategies, very small boutique communications agency. And there I am again learning now client service. So every step in my career has been this weird you know, I needed to learn some nugget. Mm-hmm. It's like story gathering, right? Sure. There was some nugget that I needed to learn that was going to help me understand how to build a business. So how long did you stay at the agency? Just two years. Okay. Really and, quick. And then was that at that point, did you feel like you had all the pieces? You sort of had this idea of storytelling. You had the idea of taking it to the internet. Now yeah. you've had the client experience. Now yeah. you're going to put it all together? Kind of. Okay. It was more so like, so what actually happened is uh, fall of 2013, my grandfather died. My grandfather was the North Star of my life. I worshipped him. He was one of the most powerful yet endearing people I'd ever met. And he was an entrepreneur. He had a canoe outfitter in northern Minnesota for 25 years. And uh, LaCroix Outfitters was (laughs) really a family business. Everybody worked in the business. And... My grandfather was old when he died. He was 93 years old. So it's a good run. There, he was a really successful life. Mm-hmm. And he didn't have um, any family really left when he passed. And he didn't have many, you know, co- co- like compatriots, friends, uh, people who were his age that were left. But when we went, I, w- I was sort of like going to the funeral thinking, like, who's going to be here? Like, there's not, we're a really small family. Like, all of grandpa's friends are gone. Like, who is going to be at this funeral? And the funeral was packed with 25 years worth of employees who had worked for my grandfather at some point in their journey. And I went for a hike that night after his funeral. And I literally to this day don't know why this happened, but I just knew that day that I was supposed to start a business. Wow. That I was supposed to, I was had learned everything I was going to learn, that I needed to learn, to at least try to start a business. Mm-hmm. And so I got back that following Monday. I wrote my letter of resignation. Uh, I didn't even have a name for the business. I just, and I, I only had the idea of, I'm going to make videos for people to put on the internet. Okay. Like, that, it was not... And you were convinced that that was a business? I was convinced that that was a business because... 
I knew that people were asking me for that at my job. Okay. And I couldn't figure out how to do that for people. I would get asked like, hey, we're going to we're working on this campaign. We think we might need like a video just for Facebook. And I would call, you know, different production companies in town and everybody would be like, well, we don't really make videos just for Facebook. I mean, we'd make a video for TV and you could put it on Facebook if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a long time. It takes costs a, a lot of money. Yeah, like it, it just – I had heard over and over again like it wasn't possible. Right. And I had all this experience online, so I knew how to get video content online. I had been doing the process myself for a very long time. And so it was just kind of like, okay, I don't know, Grandpa – I, I just know that I'm supposed to do this, so why not? Did you ever, I mean, going back, I mean, and obviously you're still young and you were young when you made this decision, but like when you were in college, would you have ever described yourself as an no. entrepreneur? Did you ever think to yourself, ultimately what I want to do is run my own business? Never, not once. You I wanted never, to be Barbara Walters. I did. I, right. I never thought of myself. Looking back now, I can honestly say to you, like what I loved about Barbara Walters was the spirit of who she is. And the spirit of true listening and true engagement. And and that's to me, is just leadership now. Like, now I see that and I say, oh, that's great leadership. But at the time, I, I didn't have context for that. You know, mm-hmm. when you're 17 years old and you're making a collegiate decision, you're not yeah. you're not seeing the bigger picture. So how old were you when you started Mightyor? I was 27. And did you, was it just you? Did you hire people? Did yeah. you buy a video camera? What did you do? It was just me. Okay. It was just me. I, I took the $5,000 I had in my savings account. I put together a really basic kit. And that basic kit was one camera, one microphone, two lenses, and a light. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do a video for as cheaply as possible for, um, this is a true story. I had a friend named Todd who worked in a nonprofit in town called Institute on the Environment. And Todd said to me, I, if you have for 1500 bucks, if you can make me this video, I'll make you this video. And I was like, not only will I make you this video, but we're going to make this video go nuts. <laughs> okay. And so he was like, oh, well, if you think that's going to happen, we'll do that. And so uh, we made this video called The Sound of Our Warming Planet. And it was a cellist who had taken NASA's temperature data, transposed it into music, and it was this five-minute creepy, horrible song. Um, <laughs> it's you can still go watch it; it's still a creepy, horrible song. But it went crazy. I mean, this kid. How did it go crazy? Uh, we put it online, and I was like, okay, well, at this point, I'd finally had a name, Mightier. And I was like, you know, at the end of the video, like Todd was nice enough to like let me put the little Mightier logo at the end of the video, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I was like, okay, the only way I'm going to be able to get any kind of publicity for the business is if this works. So I knew that from the newsroom. Like I knew that you had to get pub- like published. Right. That was the key. And so I just sent it to freaking everybody. I sent it to Wired. I sent it to Scientific American. I sent it to NPR. I sent it to Gawker. I sent it to everybody. And people were picking it up. And Mark Ruffalo tweeted it. Vice President Al Gore tweeted it. People, st- it just had a moment. This video, this creepy video had a moment. And, and then did does your phone start ringing as a result of that? No, not really. I guess I'm getting <laughs> a lot of emails saying, how do you do it? So then this is the craziest part about being in business that to this day, I'm still not sure I can quite figure this out. It got us the credibility that we needed to open the door, mm-hmm. right? Like now, okay, we've done it. We've shown that we can make cool videos that can get organic reach, that there's a way to produce them at a level that's going to be exciting for people. Um, But you still have to go in and convince people that you can help them, Mm -hmm. you know, like that their problem is something that you are equipped to solve, that their story is something that you are equipped to help tell. 
and that together you can collaborate effectively. And so even though it got me the credibility to start opening some doors, it wasn't, I wouldn't say that it was like the game changer that a lot of people would think it is, you know, it's. So what was, what, I mean, was it just sort of projects here and there? Was, was there a moment where it was like, okay, now we're in business? Interestingly, I think the big game changer happened two years in. I, um, I had met who is now our creative director, Haley, at a uh, Halloween party. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know how we're going to work together, but I just know that you as an animator with your very specific set of animation skills and me as a director with my set of skills, like we're a good team and we could probably cross sell in a way that would be really effective. And I hired Haley on a whim. Like I had no money. I'd like decided I'm going to stop paying myself. I'm going to pay Haley instead. And like, that's what we're going to do. We're going to pay Haley and I'm going to not make a salary for six months and just see what happens. And it was fire. Like and she so- and I together brought the total package. Suddenly we went from being like one person who can make a video to a full service production company that can do the video and the animation or do this or that. Like it. So give us an example. Like what what was one of your, you know, early successes? Yeah. Who, who were you? Like really, I know you worked for a lot of big brands. Yeah. Like a really early success was immediately after I hired Haley within two weeks. Microsoft gave us a job where I was going to shoot all of it and she was going to do all the animations. And when you get and a, what was their goal? Was this a viral video? It wasn't. Was this a, it was just a story they wanted to tell about a success that they had had with in in with a customer. It was a customer success story. Okay, that, that they, they were going to use on YouTube or Facebook and LinkedIn. Okay, yeah, like we just want to share on Facebook and LinkedIn this great customer success story as a way to get more customers for mm-hmm. some of our business solutions. Right. So it was. To this day, oftentimes, like the videos now are not necessarily about viral moments. They're about, hey, we have this really specific audience we're trying to talk to. And traditional advertising and traditional media spends care a lot about talking to everybody. But online, we really only need to talk to this one tiny sliver of the pie. And can you help us craft a story, a narrative that works really well for that sliver? Mm -hmm. And that was where we started to really catch because we understood we would do the research to figure out like, okay, where is this person hanging out online? Are they a LinkedIn person or a Facebook person? Are they a YouTube person? Actually, do they find things on Twitter? And we would start to craft a story and a timeline that would make sense for those platforms. And so now, my dear, as a business, really, when somebody comes to us, it's like, hey, we have a platform specific story we need to tell. We need to tell an Instagram story or we need to tell a story on Facebook. And that modality, that way of thinking is really unusual for a production company because Mm -hmm. we don't care about just everybody. We care about the right people at the right place. Do most brands understand that or do you have to educate them on that even today? It's interesting. The brands that understand it the most are brands who caught on fire online. Like I tell the example all the time of we have a a client that we work with who does, you know, $20 million a year in online hair product sales. Okay. And like that company, their marketing dollars, 100% are spent on Instagram. Hmm. 100% of their marketing dollars are spent on Instagram. And so. Because it's about style and beauty. It's about style and and beauty and fashion. And mm -hmm. and that's where those customers are. Exactly. And so they know their platform well Mm -hmm. they know their audience well and so you know it's just about leveling up what they're doing there do you have a favorite platform where do you like to work the most (laughs) i love youtube so much but i think it's funny because i think i love youtube because 
I have an affinity for what it did for me. Mm-hmm. Hasn't it changed a it's lot? Kind of, it's since changed a lot. It has changed a lot for the it, better or for. I mean, like I. I mean, I have you know a, a ten and a fourteen year old who would much it. rather <laughs> sit and watch YouTube videos yeah. than a television show, and I can't wrap my old head around that. And I consider myself fairly, you know, technologically savvy, and I'm on all the social platforms, but I don't get it. Well, there's nothing to get, really. <laughs> the, the truth of the matter is, is it's like anywhere else you go in your life. Um, for me, YouTube, there are communities of influencers or communities of voices that I just resonate with a lot. You know, I think about there's a brand called Hot Hijab out of New York that's really innovating in the in the hijab space. And it's an e-commerce first brand with hijabs. And their founder, Melanie, has a vlog that she puts out every week. And I watch her vlog every week. It's kind of like, you know... It's, it's a storytelling medium that allows you to see behind the curtain. And I think that's this authenticity that we talk about so much. It's I can't emphasize enough for folks. If you're sitting in a marketing meeting and everybody's railing about the importance of authenticity and then you're going out and hiring a, you know, a giant agency or a giant you know, branding company to help you find authenticity, mm-hmm. you're doing it wrong. You got to go find the people who are living authentically and reverse engineer the process. I was talking to the guy who, you know, Red Bull is a good example. Red Bull is a brand that has really been digital first in terms of their storytelling from the very beginning. But even Red Bull has blind spots. You know, I was talking to them about how the beauty community loves Red Bull. There are probably five or six influencers in the YouTube beauty community who have more than 10 million subscribers who every week are drinking a Red Bull during their beauty sessions on online. Because it takes them so long to put on their makeup. They and need they, energy. Yeah, they like need I don't energy. get the connection. It's like getting hyped to be on camera, right? Huh. Like you're getting hyped to be on camera. You would think be- Red Bull, I think more like, you know, adrenaline inducing sports or snowboarding. Some or people like get that. adrenaline from bronzer. You know, that's <laughs> like that's their that's how they they think Fair about enough. their life. You know, I you know, but so I'm having this conversation with this guy and I'm like, listen, that is authentic. Whether or not you want to use that in your brand is fine. Like, Mm -hmm. you can make that decision. But part of what I love about YouTube is that somebody who's a nobody, who is actually talking about something that is authentically real for them, can create a community around that transparency and and really flourish. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think Instagram, as much as I love Instagram, it's very much about the pose. It's very much about that flat image, that moment in time of perfection. And that's great too. Like I I spend a lot of time on Instagram. I love Instagram. But for me, YouTube is a place where really authentic things are happening. And a lot of these other platforms are where very carefully curated and crafted things are happening. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a that's just a division that you have to have in your mind. Right. And I mean, it, it just it seems so tricky. I mean, how do you stay ahead of the authenticity? Because the minute something is working and, you know, and mm-hmm. there is an authentic moment, then you see other brands try to copy that. I mean, yeah. how how do you how do you continue to to put out authentic moments, especially for a bigger brand? Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. We just finished a show with Facebook this year, which is one of like the been the funniest full circle moments of my career is that I've been making a bunch of videos for Facebook. So the day you get the call to make videos for Facebook paid for, created by and promoting Facebook to go on Facebook mm-hmm. is like the most mind screwing moment of your life because you're just like, what am I doing exactly? Like, but they found you. They, they found called us. You. And, you know, I start working on this campaign and 
it becomes really clear very early on that the story that we needed to tell was how the folks who use their products and services to promote their businesses, how that helped them find the people, the customers that made the difference in their business, right? So if you are you know, a restaurant in Seattle, as an example, how are people discovering you? They're not, let's be honest, not many of us are like, yeah, let me just Google random restaurant in Seattle (laughs) and go out to dinner. People are discovering the the great thing they want to go see or do in a city on Instagram. I have entire folders on my Instagram of cities I know I'm going to where I've saved hotels, restaurants, uh, museums, other attractions. There is a cultural zeitgeist around experiences right now. Mm-hmm. I think we've become so hungry for experiences that we have actually swung in a really extreme direction. And for me, there's there's authenticity to be found in just that one fact. Everything else can be perfect and polished and, you know, really on brand. But being able to share that moment of truth where, you know, a business owner says to me, The make or break moment for my business was when this influencer posted a great photo of our bar. Like that does. And I know what that's like. Mm -hmm. You know, I know what that's like. And so I get So that's what you were capturing for Facebook. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you're a believer in influencers, in the power of influence, but but from this whole kind of new generation of people who identify themselves as influencers. I believe in the power of influencers. And I actually believe in the power of micro-influencers and stars like there are people who are micro influencers in 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 our community here in minneapolis there Mm -hmm. are people who you know maybe only have a thousand instagram followers but a lot of people know them and the people who do know them are really passionate about what they're doing Mm -hmm. uh anybody can be an influencer if you have something that you are you know, uniquely capable of talking about online and you can do it in an authentic way that connects with other people, you're now you're an influencer. Mm -hmm. I think the careful line we have to draw is what are you using that influence to drive? You know, are you using that influence to drive community? Are you using that influence to drive support for other people who look like you and act like you and have the same problems as you? Are you using that influence to build a business? Are you using that influence to support a cause? That, to me, is the most important question we need to ask about influencers right now. And if you're building that influence and then you're selling every item of clothing you're wearing, does that start to get cringy for you? Or it you're does. getting the free food or you're getting the free hotel stay? Yeah. How do you? But at the same time, it's like, well, if you've built this audience and that's the value and mm-hmm. that's a way that you can make money, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with it. For some people, their influence is their business. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great. If you're able to turn your personhood into a business, good for you. Just be honest about it. Right. I, I, that's all. That that comes back to journalistic integrity, well, that's what right? I was going to say. I mean, so, I mean, that's what's so fascinating for me and the thing that I think we wrestle with in traditional newsrooms today is that, you know, I think of journalists as the original influencers. Mm. We've been telling people where to go, what restaurants to try, where to travel, you know, for years and years before we were able to do it on Instagram. Yeah. But we weren't doing it because we were being paid by those people places we were very consciously not being paid Mm -hmm. so is there you know is there a difference when you know it's interesting to me that I feel like my kids and the generation that's growing up on social media they don't distinguish they don't care if the person's being paid or not if it's a pretty picture and someone that they like or trust says this is the best restaurant then they want to go to that restaurant 
I Yes. But I would also say that there is a clear difference between, I think when people say influencer, mm -hmm. the first thing that comes out of most people's brains is Kim Kardashian. Mm -hmm. And... I want to be really careful to say that I think there's a huge difference between somebody who has used their celebrity status to become an economic machine of influence and somebody like, um, I'll just use like Kate Ahrens of Wit and Delight as an example because she's sure. local. Like somebody who has a really unique point of view, who has a distinctly uh, interesting message to share with the world and who for the most part is backing that up with real brains, mm -hmm. you know, like there, and that's not to say that there's not intelligence in, in celebrity. There is, but there, for me, it's about what, again, that question of what are you using your influence to do? Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about yours. Yeah. You, how you use Instagram. Oh Lord. You know, I have a operating thesis, which is be honest about the journey, uh, celebrate your success and walk in your truth. So for me, what that means is this running a business is not easy. And I actually think one of the great disservices of a lot of the like entrepreneurial influencers that exist out there is sort of spreading this message that anyone can do it. Just like being a journalist, just like being an entrepreneur, being a professional athlete, not everyone can do this. Mm -hmm. Like there is way too much of you can you can live the dream. If you pursue what you love, you will be successful. You know, that's not true. Right. It's, well, that's kind of the, the double-edged sword of technology today. It's such a low barrier of entry that anybody is. can be a blogger. Anybody can yeah. say, I'm going to be an influencer yeah. and set up an account, but that doesn't actually equate mm -hmm. to true influence. So for you, it's sort of providing a little peek behind the scenes, it seems like. You're, you, you share a lot of moments about being a, a business founder, about yeah. being an entrepreneur. On I your own, own on your really, own channels. I share about three things, which is that mm -hmm. <laughs> my cats and my travel. <laughs> I mean, that's really what I love to talk about. Um, I love animals. I love rescuing animals. I think it's so important that people rescue animals. So I, I love talking about that. It has nothing to do with running a business, but I love talking about that. And that's again being in walking in my truth. Mm -hmm. So what advice? Well, first of all, let's 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 get everybody up to speed on where Mightier is today. You're mm -hmm. you're how many years in at this point? Five and a half years in. Five and a half years in. You have how many employees? Fifteen. Okay. Two cities: Denver and Minneapolis. And Great and I customers. mean, in addition to Facebook, you've worked with the NFL, right? Yep. United with... Healthcare. Um, I mean, the big brands, but then you know, I love the little brands too. We work with great companies like Tea Drops. You know, an awesome tea company out of LA. Like, we kind of work with. Any brand that is talking online to customers in a real way. Has it gotten easier? Do you spend less time having to educate the brands? I mean, do they come to you today sort of understanding more about the power of video on the Internet and, yeah. and with a better understanding of what they can and should do? Yeah, there's so I don't have to do much education anymore. Mostly what happens is now when we go meet with someone, they say, thank God you exist. Hmm. Like, I've had this problem for a really long time. We hadn't been able to find the production crew that could do this for us. We're so happy you exist. So validating. I mean, it's taken five years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, but, that's pretty fast, know, though. Yeah, ultimately, it's, it's validating. I think I always tell my team, if somebody doesn't understand why we exist, they're probably not the right customer for us. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Should every brand out there, large and small, be doing video? Should everybody feel the pressure to be talking to their potential customers yeah. that way? Today? Controversial moment. I don't think video is great for every brand. But for the brands that really do it 
with passion and who do it repeatedly, it can work for their brand. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Like you can't, I really think the biggest disservice you can do for your brand is like, I'm just going to do one random video and just see what happens. I will guarantee you that will fail because you're not creating a narrative that is actually follow. Like most people want to follow a narrative. They want to follow a story. They want to be part of the journey. That is why we have these social channels. If if a brand thinks they have these social channels just to sell, they're missing the the greater opportunity, which is to build trust with an audience and to develop a community around your organization. Mm-hmm. So if you're just doing a flash in the pan video, it's probably going to fail. Don't call us. Like that's <laughs> I, I don't want to be part of your failure. Mm-hmm. But if you want to do a series of videos that's going to answer your client's biggest questions, that's going to position you for thought leadership around your next sale or your next service item, that is going to help give your customers an idea of why you're the superior choice to your competitors, then yeah, we can help you because we can help you figure out how to take the steps to share that story over time and do it in a repeatable way. And that for me is where it makes sense for a brand. Is there one success story, maybe not the biggest, maybe not the flashiest, maybe not Facebook. Is there something that you're to this day that you're just really proud of or that you think was a real success or surprise? There's a success story that still amazes me to this day, which is, you know, a lot of people will say to me, well, video is so bad in B2B. And so, like, this is not sexy. Like, this is not about to be like, woo, you know, but. Uh, The biggest comment I get is video isn't great for B2B. And I'll say, well, let me tell you the story about a company out of Boulder called Gorilla Logic. When I met them, they were 25 people. They were a development shop that utilized um, experts in the U.S. and experts in Costa Rica to build apps and, and really complex software for businesses. When we met them, we made three or four videos for them that were about, you know, the culture of working with them, what kind of services they provide, why they were a great fit for certain types of companies. You know, we serialized this content. We put it out over time. Uh, Two and a half years later, they call me up. They're five times bigger. Uh, The number one asset that their customers mention when they call the first time is we loved that video we saw on XYZ. And... It's not just their number one recruitment tool for customers. It's been their number one recruitment tool for uh, employees. And they're about to double again this year in size. Wow. And so we went back down there. We shot eight more videos. You know, mm-hmm. like, and, and to me, those are the success stories that I go, there's a story everywhere. If you're willing to spend the time working through it, we can help you get there. Mm-hmm. And I'm so proud of that. That makes me really happy. I want to talk about your next business, but before we do that, um, I'm curious how your job has changed as the founder and CEO who started out with that one camera and just you. Yeah. What is what is the day-to-day today, and, and how do you feel about how your role has had to evolve now that you're kind of running this little empire? It is the hardest thing in the world to level up yourself. Uh, it's really easy to coach other people. Like, you'll look at someone else at your organization and say, like, you got to work on this, 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 mm-hmm. this. As the boss, nobody's looking at you going, hey, you got to work on <laughs> yeah. these three or four skills. You have to be self-reflective enough to say, oh, okay, the business is changing. I need to level up in these key ways. And what does that mean? So now today, you know, my job, I really look at as being an advocate for the amazing people that make beautiful content at our company. So I'm out there talking about what are they doing right now? How can it help your business? Really selling. It's a lot of sales. Uh, But it's also operations. You know, I literally spend a 
ton of time figuring out how do we define success for our employees? How do we define customer success? How do we measure those things? Looking at the P&L and the balance sheet and mm-hmm. all the reporting and trying to figure out where are we having opportunities and where are we missing opportunities? Do you like that part of it? I used to hate it, but now I love it. And how did you learn it? I mean, was it really oh, just kind of trial and so error? Painful. Have you had mentors or places that you've gone to? So, again, kind of that moment of, like, no one's telling you that you need to stop and level up. Mm-hmm. So I was two years into the business, and I had kind of this ridiculously cavalier idea that I was just going to outsource finance, that somebody else was going to be in charge of the money and as long as I worked really hard, it would take care of itself. Right. I could not, two years in my business, I could not tell you the difference between a P&L and a balance sheet. Mm-hmm. And right Journalist now, to your core. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's embarrassing though. Yeah, no. Like, I'm very embarrassed <laughs> yeah, about that. Yeah. And so the thing that I think kind of snapped me out of it was I was talking to our tax advisor and she said to me very bluntly, like, this will hold you back next year. The way you're growing... If you cannot figure this out, you will start losing money and growing and you won't know why. Wow. And I was like, okay, well, that's interesting insight. And so I asked around some fellow business owners, like, what did you do? How did you level up? I found out about this Babson Executive Education Program in Wellesley, Massachusetts. I knew I was going to have to step away from the business for three months to do it. But I also knew that if I didn't do it then, I would be screwed. Like, (laughs) just bluntly. And I had kind of made the decision that I wanted a bigger company. And so I go to Babson. I learn balance sheets. I learn P&Ls. I know what EBIT is. Like, uh-huh. I, you know, I, I spend the time educating myself on the financial side of the business. And now I think the reason why I love it now, you know, partially is because I can look at that data and I can tell the health of our organization really quickly. And... I get frustrated. I can I can I get frustrated when I feel like I don't have enough information. Again, kind of like a journalist instinct of like, why? How? What is this about? What does this data tell us? You know? And for the first time I can look at information about the business and drill down into bigger problems and find opportunities that never existed for us before. Mm-hmm. Um we can make hiring decisions based on real data instead of just gut instinct. I mean, wow, what an mm-hmm. amazing concept, you know? And it was a huge lesson, and it's a lesson I'm really grateful for because it really kicked me in the ass and said, like, you need to learn this. Huh. And if you don't learn it now, you probably will fail. Yeah. Well, good for you. So um, Then you got a different kind of education when mm-hmm. you became a Tory Birch Fellow. What an honor. How cool. Um, what was that process like? It's an intense process. They take it very seriously, as yeah. they should. So you apply, you get nominated. Yeah, so you apply, uh, and you've got to do a lot of homework. You've got to know, you fill out all these essays about... What did you want out of it? Why did you even apply? I applied because I had started germinating on the idea of Suna. And I knew in my heart of hearts that running a service business mm-hmm. and running a retail brand were very different things. Okay, so this is your new business. Mm-hmm. This is sort of the, but that you're starting as a separate, mm-hmm. separate entity, so, but yeah. also video production. Let's what, what, tell us a little bit about what that's going to be. Yeah, so a year ago, I started having the idea for a same day photo and video studio, really meant to fill the need for those content ideas that 
you don't have weeks or months to produce, but that are a great opportunity right now mm-hmm. and that could help brands scale their social content. Uh, if you Smaller think, brands than the types of brands you're working on with Smaller Smidier. brands, but even so, like it's, I've been surprised how many big brands will come to me and say, oh my God, we forgot to take pictures on Valent- for Valentine's Day for social media. Like, can you help with this? Right. So it was a surprising, it was it was years of listening to customers and it didn't matter if it was a giant customer like Facebook or a really small customer like a liquor store that we work with. They all had this problem of we can't scale content. We definitely can't do it affordably. And there is no fast way to get content. And so the place we turn to is stock content sites, which I don't know about you, mm-hmm. but I've Hate. never met anyone yeah. who likes a stock content no. site. And so last resort. It's a last resort. But yet it is, you know, it's an interesting thing today. I mean, it, it can really paralyze you. I it mean, for, for me, like running a website, you know, for TCB Mag, we can have a great breaking news story. Mm-hmm. But if we don't have a photo to go with that story, it holds us up. We literally can't post a story on our website yeah. without a photo. It's so, true. So it just it was enough people sort of telling me the same problem over and over and over again. And Haley and I went on a trip to Palm Springs and we just kind of said to ourselves, like, if we took every idea we had about production and we turned it on its head and we said, it's not impossible to do this the same day. It's not impossible to deliver quickly. It's not impossible to do it affordably. What would we do? Because Mightier is working on bigger projects that I mean, take weeks, months. We can spend three weeks in compliance on a script. Okay. I mean, like that's we're very much full service in the sense of we are helping you strategize, do all of the creative development, have all of the pre-planning, do all of your permitting. Like we're really like stepping you through every single step of a production. Mm-hmm. Where as soon as like, hey, I've got a great idea. I want to try it out. I'm willing to spend a couple hundred bucks to do it. Let's cu- stop in, create that great content, and see how people react. So I, it's, I think it helps people understand. I love your analogy that it's sort of like today's version of Kinko's it is. for video Kinko's for content. content. Kinko's for content. Tell, you got to tell the story of why you named it Suna. <laughs> it's S-O-O-N-A. I do. So, again, anytime Haley and I do anything smart, we go to California. So we <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> so, at the time, we were thinking we were just going to call this company Mightier Studios. And I kept getting all this advice of, like, that's really dumb. Do not call this business Mightier Studios mm-hmm. because people are just going to think it's a physical space. Like, they're not going to think of it as a separate business. So, we go to California. We make this whole list in Malibu of, like, we go to a branding workshop. We come up with all these names. We've got about 10 names that we really like. And I get on the airplane home and I'm reading this article about Gwyneth Paltrow's goop. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, divisive character, but damn if that woman didn't build a business quickly. Absolutely. (laughs) Right? So I am going through and there's this little pull quote that's like, Gwyneth chose Goop because of all the companies that IPO'd at more than a billion dollars in the technology space in the last five years, the common denominator between most of them was they had a double O in their name. (laughs) I was like, Facebook, okay, Google, okay, Yahoo, okay. I mean, Yahoo's wow. another story, but like you just start yeah. you're making the list and you're like, dang, that's like A real. double O. So I go back to that list of 10 names and there's Suna, S-O-O-N-A. Mm-hmm. And we already liked it. It was snappy. We could get the URL. We knew we could get the trademark. Like there was, it was enough things kind of going in its favor that I was like, that's it. 
Like, it's Suna. There is no... It has to be. It has you need to the double be. O. You need the double O. So Suna is opening. It might even be open when this airs um, in Denver and in Minneapolis. Yes, Denver. And these are physical spaces where people can go and say, hey... I need this little video this afternoon. Yep. We provide you the people, the production equipment, and even the props to be able to create your content. All you have to do is bring yourself or your product. So it's pretty easy. So unlike Mightier, I mean, that requires some money off Mm -hmm. the bat, right? You've now got spaces. You have to have all the equipment and all that. How has it been different setting up this business? Are you raising money? Are you using Mightier money? How is that working? Yeah. Well, it's been totally different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, kudos to to my financial advisor for telling me to get some financial education because what we essentially ended up doing was, you know, my first business, I bootstrapped. I had taken my savings and, and built it myself that way. This business, we needed capital. And so, you know, I made the first really large investment. I've been lucky enough to make enough money with my dear that I could make a pretty sizable investment to start the company. But now we're raising money. And uh, this is the this is your first experience. First going experience out. talking to investors, having those conversations. How is that? They all hate retail. <laughs> they all hate every single. Okay, great. Love your business. Love the problem you're solving. Why retail? Huh. Okay. You know, and there's a lot of reasons why. Um, but I'll I'll leave that with the asterisk of I love a challenge. Mm-hmm. So as soon as we started hearing why retail, my newest deck now says, let me just show you some headlines about what a great opportunity retail is right mm-hmm. now. <laughs> but uh, it's not really retail in this. I mean, it's not like you're selling t-shirts. I mean, you're no. setting up a space so that people can go and get it done. Yeah. Right? There's this false idea, though, that nobody wants services delivered to them in physical spaces anymore. That you could do sooner, but it could be totally virtual. Exactly. And why don't you think it can be totally virtual? It can't be totally virtual for two key reasons. The first is fiber. We need fiber internet to be able to deliver to you quickly. And so the vast majority of places that we would go, be it a restaurant or you know a small brand, they don't have fiber internet inside of their spaces. The second really key component is we need to be able to, con- if you want to have a guarantee of really great quality output, you've got to have great input. So having control of the space where we're going to have great lights, we're going to have really high-end equipment, we're going to have all of the things you need to get that quality out, we've got to control that. And so it's our way of guaranteeing that you're going to get a good result. Is there any part of you that worries that people won't show up? Oh, of course. I am Right now, I am in the... I am in a unique place, emotional place, (laughs) that I call complete paranoia mixed with total joy of anticipation mixed with wait till I show you something Mm -hmm. like you have to be you have to believe in your own crazy a little bit but you won't be successful if you don't listen to the paranoia too and so we're hustling we're trying to make sure that people know what's going on that we're meeting with customers every day I mean we are really working hard to get the message out so So back to Tori Birch you you get (laughs) this fellowship you've got this new business idea yeah what what was the biggest takeaway and did you get to like talk fashion with Tori Birch a little bit at all she's divine by the way (laughs) like you walk into her office it's the most beautiful amazing office and then not only do you So she has a beautiful, amazing office, but she has this aura of total self-possession, which I 
have to tell you, I don't always feel like I have an aura of self-possession. I think I have sometimes an aura of like, I'm on fire. Um, <laughs> In the best possible way. Yeah. yeah. But uh, so she's a pretty incredible person. So the fellowship really it lasts a year. And it kicks off with this amazing week in New York where you go to headquarters and you see her brand and you see how they run their business. You get an inside look. You get, you know, conversations with Tori. You go to dinner with Tori. Like you just you have this amazing mm-hmm. experience. You get a lot of free swag, mm. which is pretty great. Um, and then you're assigned sort of mentors through the network of the foundation who are helping you through key elements of your business. And you touch base with them every week. Like, here's what I'm working on. Here's some of the challenges. One of the really interesting things that's been really fun for me, though, is the connection with the other women who are also selected as fellows, you know, totally different businesses. There's a woman who's doing, you know, organic sprinkles and another woman who's doing, um, what do you call it? Uh, Indian-inspired ice cream flavors. And, like, those women, they blow my mind. I love them. Like, I couldn't... They couldn't have more different businesses, but just inspired, unique women. Mm-hmm. I love Was it that. all women? It's is all the women. Whole, okay. So the fellowship is kind of designed to build a community around this idea, like high-growth businesses um, that have the potential to grow and be really big brands if they're given the support and the community and the network that they need to do that. And mm-hmm. so the fellowship is really designed for that express purpose. So what did you what wise words did you get from Tori? Did she did she give you any advice that you that you think about or that resonates as you move forward with Suna? Couple things. So in, investors specifically, I asked her a lot about that mm-hmm. because I knew that I was going to raise money. I'd never done it before. I was really nervous about it. You know, you hear so many horror stories about investors taking over businesses or investors kind of, I don't want to say like taking, having a coup or planning a coup, but you you hear those stories. And so I um, I asked her, how did she decide What questions did she ask? What due diligence did she do to ensure that the investors that were going to help build Tori Birch, which is her name, by the Mm -hmm. way, like that's another piece of this puzzle. It's her brand. It's her name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How did you ensure that those people were going to be a good fit? And her advice around that was pretty critical for me. She said, you can never take too long to ensure that someone's money is the right money for your business. Hmm. Great advice. And, um... You know, you your instinct when somebody says, like, I'm going to write you a check, your gut instinct is to be like, yes, OK, get the check. Right. Uh, but taking a breath and saying, like, OK, I'm going to do the due diligence. And I actually was talking to another business owner the other day and I was like, he's like, what are you doing today? I'm like, oh, I'm going to go talk to this woman who's going to tell me a little bit about this guy. I'm considering taking his money, but I need to do some due diligence on him and, like, make sure he checks out and that he's been, like, a good board member and he was like, you're doing due diligence on your investors? And I was like, I am, in fact, doing due diligence on my investors. He's like, wow. wow. How far you've come. Yeah. Um, unbelievable. Yeah. It's game changing. Where do you want to be? Where is Mightier going to be? Where is Suna going to be in five years? You know, I see these businesses as sister businesses, right? Like one is fast, casual content and one is a really high-end production. Mm-hmm. And my hope for Suna is that we can completely change the game for how content is made and make it accessible to any brand of any size at any time. And I see that being very possible. 
you know, being in every city on the globe, providing great content to brands and to Asuna people. shop. We're yeah. going to stop Asuna. in, make our videos. Asuna have them in posted. Tokyo, Asuna in London, Asuna in New York, wherever wow. you are, I want to be there. And what happens if the social media platforms change? Do you worry about that? I what do. if Facebook goes away? What if people <laughs> stop using it? What if Instagram changes? I mean, what, what happens then? You know, I don't think I'm going to be running Asuna shops for 100 years. I think, you know, they've got 10 solid years of running that kind of business in me. And I don't see an end in sight for the next 10 years at least. What I do see is increasingly the desire for people to understand how to make great stuff. You know, I think we had this moment in time with the iPhone and with the the affordable technology around cameras. Like everyone really wanted to get their hands into it to make stuff. So we've all been making a lot of stuff for mm-hmm. a while. But I think we're finally reaching a threshold of more curatorial skills uh, that I think is going to continue to expand. And I'm hoping that there will be new platforms that emerge that love and embrace the beautiful and that create room for every kind of brand. Hmm. You know? You got to keep up on everything. Yeah. Will influencers still be, will that still be a career 10 Mm. years from now? (laughs) I actually... That's a good question. I think influencers will always exist. You know, I sort of laugh that my dad is an influencer in Virginia, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows Rico Georgie in Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I always think influencers will exist. I think the question will be, how do we define as a culture the role of influencers in crafting our societal expectations about how we treat each other? Right. I think we've kind of... Whatever your opinions are about the world, there's a lot of people out there right now who are really famous bullies. And uh, I would like to see us have more of a culture of really famous kindness, mm-hmm. kind people who do good things for each other. Excellent goals. Definitely in a lot of influence coming from you. Liz, Georgie, thank you so much for sharing your story. We will be looking for Suna on a corner near us very soon, certainly here in Minneapolis and in Denver. Thanks for your wait. time today. Thank you. Don't go away. We will be back to go back to the classroom with St. Thomas right after this. And now, back to the classroom with our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Is it enough to be the creative force behind your big idea, or do you need the business know-how to really make it take off? Let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. John McVeigh teaches at the University of St. Thomas. He's an expert in entrepreneurial strategy. I thought it was so interesting, John, when Liz talked about taking that time to step away from her business and really get the business education that she didn't have when she started this whole enterprise, not really knowing how big it was going to get. Mm-hmm. Is that common for an entrepreneur to maybe not have that formal training? They're more the creatives, not necessarily the the numbers person. And how important is it to really know all of that? Well, one, one of the challenges we have when we talk about business and, and entrepreneurship in particular is our, our tendency to separate the practical, the creative, and, and the theoretical as if they're separate from each other. Uh, You know, that practical is just about understanding the numbers and creative just is inspiration and theoretical is largely irrelevant. And, 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 you know, we think that's a real mistake. Um, 
all successful businesses and business educations indeed have to integrate the practical, the creative and the theoretical together. Um, they're just one. And, and in an entrepreneurial business and a small business, this is often easier to see. I mean, one of the particular challenges is we, we separate in, uh, the practical from the creative and imply that, you know, the creative is just comes from sheer inspiration when you sit in your basement and you have this brilliant insight and solve all the problems. And that practical approach is very mundane and repetitive and boring. But in fact, if you look at something in a different field, like the arts, um, you know, you find people who are really, really creative in the arts, they practice as part of their profession, as their discipline. So sure. the, the, the jazz pianist practices their, their scales and their chords religiously so they can improvise. The ballerina dance practices, stretches and exercises so that she can look seamless and flawless on the stage. And it's the same in business and entrepreneurship. The practical side and the creative side are, 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 are integrated and indeed must be integrated to be successful. So if you are that entrepreneur and you're starting something and it seems to be working, but you do lean more one way than the other, do you think it's important to kind of round out your own right. personal knowledge? Well, the, the great news is both can be learned. Um, so if you're coming from the more creative side, um, you can learn the practical business skills. In fact, they will make you more creative because just being creative, absent the business constraints, will not make you particularly creative. A lot of inspiration for creativity comes from constraints. So recognizing and having a, a, an in-depth understanding of your limited cash position or your limited ability to purchase equipment or materials may well open the door for you to come up with some creative solutions to how to run your business. So constraints the friend of creativity. It's not the enemy. And having that, you know, that practical understanding of the business um, it just work, works hand in glove. The other good news is an even bigger bias we tend to have in society is that creativity can't be learned, that there are just those creative people and that there are just those practical people. And creative people are a different species. And the good news is, if you are on the other side of the fence, uh, or if you, as a creative entrepreneur, are partnering with your practical business partner, it's perfectly possible for, your, for people with the business training to become part of the creative process. They don't have to stay siloed. Yeah. So for instance, there's a whole series of tools that you can learn that make you more creative. There's a whole series of disciplines and practices that we teach as part of um, you know, uh, approaches like human-centered design that teach a systematic set of tools that make you more creative and, and allow you to see um, creative opportunities where you wouldn't see them beforehand. So yes, not only do they have to work hand in glove, but also they're both teachable. And that's what we that's what's the fantastic opportunity of teaching entrepreneurship. You get to teach, you know, practical skills, theoretical skills, and you also get to teach and uh, encourage people to improve their creative skills. Well, that's great news for all of us. Thank you, John McVeigh, and thank you to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you haven't already, please subscribe to By All Means wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also go to tcbmag.com slash byallmeans to learn more about the show. On our next episode, we talk to Ann Kim, owner of Vestalia Hospitality and James Beard-nominated head chef of Pizzeria Lola, Young Joni, and Hello Pizza. I'm hungry already. I'm Allison Kaplan, and on behalf of Twin Cities Business, thanks for listening to By All Means.
Thanks to Brad Jacobson, John Sullivan, and Tom Forlitti from St. Thomas, as well as Sam Schaust and Ricky Hannigan from Twin Cities Business for helping to produce and engineer our show. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Thanks also to Senior Media Relations Manager Vanita Sakar and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for helping us to make this happen. Hope you enjoyed, by all means. Thank you.